reading this morning is from the 16th chapter of Acts, and beginning with verse 11 through verse 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Simultrace, and there the following day to Nepalus, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the seventh day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It is so good to The New Testament book, The Acts of the Apostles, is the beginning history of the church. It's the beginning history of the church that was established on the first Pentecost following the death of Christ. Within its pages, we learn uh, how the church grew. We learn uh, what means or by what means it grew. We learn how the First century Christians behaved toward each other, toward the God of heaven. And Luke, the disciple of Jesus, and also uh, the missionary companion to Paul the Apostle, he wrote this letter to a man named Theophilus. This was his second correspondence to Theophilus, and it comes after he had written to him about the life of Christ. This correspondence was a continuance of Christ having died on the cross, having come forth from the grave, and having ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, ruling over His kingdom. And that, of course, is the history of the church. From there, He began to give some insight on how the church was established. The message delivered by the apostles and the other inspired speakers and and writers. He began to talk about the way in which God added to those people who believed and obeyed the message to the church. He talked about the requirements that God had placed on those people to behave in a certain way and to carry out certain requirements to those who had believed. As we look through the book of Acts, we can count 11 accounts of conversion. Eleven times when either an individual or individuals or areas such as Ephesus or Samaria or things of that nature where people became Christians, where they obeyed the gospel that was preached to them by either the apostles or some other Christian who had obeyed the gospel himself, such as Philip. Now, in those 11 accounts, I think it's very interesting to notice not one single episode has every requirement that was preached to those people who
who obeyed the gospel throughout the book of Acts. Now what I mean by that is this. Only 10 out of 11 specifically mention the gospel was taught. Now obviously we understand that the 11th one, the gospel was taught in that also. Only six uh, talk about believing in Christ as a prerequisite to gaining salvation. But I don't think any of us would disagree that that is necessary for one to become saved, is to believe in Christ. Only in three uh, instances is repentance mentioned. I don't think any of us would disagree that one must repent of past sins, turn his or her life around and focus on God and live the way that He would have us to live. Only one time is confession specifically mentioned, but the acknowledgement of faith is supplied by supplemental texts throughout the Bible. While baptism is mentioned, not all the other requirements are mentioned. So when we read these 11 accounts, we have to ask the question, when, Paul, when Peter preached on Pentecost, he talked about believing, or he talked about repenting and being baptized. Okay, when Philip taught the eunuch, he talked about believing and confessing and being baptized. Well, what about repentance? Yes, because Peter mentioned it, right? Peter mentioned it. I think when we study the, the history of the early church in the book of Acts, and we see during this Christian dispensation, which is still going on today, and will until the end of the world, Acts 28, verse 20, that when God makes a requirement placed upon any person who obeys the gospel or the process in which they must obey the gospel to one individual or individuals, it must be applied to everyone. Because... All of those people were members of that one church that Peter helped to establish and the one for which Christ died and built on the day of Pentecost. Among those listed accounts of conversion, we read about a lady named Lydia. Paul met her on his second missionary journey when he and his companions had traveled to Macedonia. They'd gone into the city of Philippi, and there she was. Some Jewish ladies had convened on the bank of the river to worship God through the Jewish system of faith, and Lydia was one of those ladies. Though it's not mentioned, I don't think anyone can deny her open acknowledgement that Christ is Lord and her salvation after having studied with the Apostle Paul. The title of the sermon this morning is an example to all, and I believe Lydia fits the bill. I think she fits the bill uh, not only because she ought to be studied, but I think today is especially a good day to talk about Lydia. It's Mother's Day. Now, whether or not Lydia was a mother, we're not told. Her husband's not mentioned. Any children are not mentioned. She may have never been married, may have never had any children. But her example, I think, is the example... All mothers ought to want to follow and all the rest of us who are not mothers. I think there are some amazing truths about Lydia presented to the Bible student in our passage. First of all, she was a religious woman. And I want to begin with what I believe is one of the most needed attributes in the world today. 
Lydia held herself accountable. That's our first point. She held herself accountable because she was a religious person. But how do we know that she held herself accountable? Simply because she called on the name of of God or as we study church history in the Bible class this morning, we notice that in the, the centuries leading up to Christ coming into the world and following, there were a multitude of religions in the world, and that did not necessitate that those adherents to those religions were moral in any sense of the word. So how do we know that Lydia held herself accountable to a particular standard? I think we see it in the passage because she was listening to what Paul was teaching. Not only was she listening, she wanted to know what he was telling her, and she wanted to do what God wanted her to do, and so Paul was giving her that information. In fact, I think Lydia was in the exact same situation as Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Like Lydia, Cornelius believed in God, and he worshipped Him as a Jew. Of course, this was during the time that the church had already been established, It's in Acts chapter 10 and and retold in Acts chapter 11. But Cornelius is described as a devout man. Lydia is described as a worshiper of God. Both had evidently proselytized to the Jewish religion and they wanted to be faithful to the God of heaven. They wanted to live up to a standard and they wanted to hold themselves accountable. Cornelius was a a fair man, a devout man. He gave alms to the poor. He prayed regularly according to the Jewish religion. We see Lydia going down to that riverbank as was the custom. Evidently, there were not enough Jews in Philippi to have a synagogue because that's where Paul tried to go every Saturday so he could preach the gospel to those Jews. There wasn't a synagogue. You had to have at least ten devout men who were Jews, to be able to have a synagogue in any particular city. So there must not have been that many people. So he went down to the the riverbank, as was the custom for people to gather. The word used to to describe Cornelius, I believe, will help us better understand Lydia and her situation. Again, Cornelius was described as devout. Now that word devout is not the same word used in Acts 10... uh, verse 25, or Acts 2, verse 5, when Peter or Luke described about devout men from all over the world coming to that place in Jerusalem to observe the the Passover feast. That word means to uh, uh, carefully and surely adhere to God's Word or God's commandments. So those men and women from all different nations around the world, they were very careful to observe the commandment of participating in that feast. And we see that because they they came from hundreds and hundreds of miles away. But this word devout, talking about Cornelius, comes from an entirely different Greek word. It comes from the Greek word usabes, which means pious and dutiful, but without the proper knowledge of God. So so we see Cornelius here wanting to be faithful to God, having a zeal wanting to be faithful to God, but he was like the other Jews of which Paul spoke. 
They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Romans 10, verse 2. See, knowledge is very important, isn't it? In every aspect of life, knowledge is extremely important. We go to work and we do whatever work it is that we have chosen in this life, and we have to have a particular knowledge or we cannot be successful. People who drive for a living have to know how to drive, right? People who work with their hands have to know how to work with their hands. People who work on a computer have to have technology uh, information that they follow and that they understand. So knowledge is extremely important. We had Jews that Paul talked about in Romans. They were zealous for God. They were like Cornelius. They were like Lydia. They were zealous for God. They wanted to please God, but they weren't doing it according to this knowledge that God had delivered to them and of which Paul spoke. And like Cornelius... Lydia worshipped within a system that God had ended. No longer were the, was the Jewish religion God's religion. He had ended that religion when Christ died on the cross and rose again. And the apostles stood up on that day of Pentecost and established the church in Jerusalem. But as Paul sat with her and with those with her, she listened to what Paul had to say. We see that she held herself accountable. Well, we can listen to things, can't we? We can listen to something and still not want to hold ourselves accountable, but there was something different about Lydia. Lydia not only wanted to listen to Paul, she wanted to live the way that he had instructed her through the gospel of Christ. She wanted to live what she heard and she wanted to heed what she heard. She wanted to please God. Why? She was a religious woman. She was a religious woman. She was a worshiper of God. I believe far too many people in this world like the idea of serving God. They like the idea of being faithful to God. They like the idea of that lifestyle, but they do not want to change their lifestyles. They want to serve God. They want to say, I believe in God. I think in reality, there are very few people, especially in our nation, if you ask them, do you believe in God, I think a vast majority would say, I believe in God. But their belief in God probably means something a little different than our belief in God. Their belief in God may simply be, I acknowledge that God exists. I may even acknowledge that Christ came into the world, but I still like doing what I'm doing. I still like living in such a way that... that when we read the Bible, we understand very clearly those are ways in which we should not live. And so because we simply have a belief doesn't mean that we are going to take the appropriate action that God requires. What if those people on the day of Pentecost, when they said, Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 35, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 36, or verse that was 37, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what if they had stood up and they said, Now Peter, wait a minute. I don't want to do that. Can someone bring me a battery? I don't want to do that. They're up here on the front. What would have Peter said? 
I don't think Peter would have gone along with that, would he? I don't think God would have been pleased with that. I don't believe that when God gives a commandment that any person has a right to change that commandment. And so when He tells us to do something, I think that we ought to do it. Now, I think there are uh, uh, some very important facts that we learn about Lydia that we ought to make some kind of an application to our lives. I think there are various, some very important aspects of her conversion that we need to ask some questions about, that we need to find the answers to those questions. Let's again notice what Luke recorded, Acts 16, verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now what's intended by that statement? What is the Holy Spirit, or what was the Holy Spirit trying to get across to the reader? What did Luke mean by that when he wrote this letter to Theophilus? And the Lord opened her heart. Now there is a doctrine taught that goes back hundreds of years. It doesn't go back to Pentecost, but it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And that doctrine is known as uh, total hereditary depravity. Now I think we need to be very conscious to understand what that term means. We had we need to understand what all three of those words indicate to us when it is put together and it speaks of this term, total hereditary depravity. Now, when we look at the word total, what does that mean? Complete. There's nothing outside of total, right? Hereditary. What do we learn from hereditary? Well, I got that from my parents, right? I inherited something, or I have hereditary uh, qualities in my physical body that I inherited from my parents. My eyes are blue, my hair's red, uh, you know, I'm uh, of a certain stature. We gain a lot of that from our parents, don't we? So hereditary means I got that from somebody. It goes on back up my family tree. What about depravity? What does it mean to be depraved? There is not one single good thing within your being. A person who is depraved cares nothing about him or herself, anyone else in this world, especially about God. Total hereditary depravity means I'm completely, and I gained it from those before me, Depraved, no good thing can come from my existence. Now this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It contends that since the initial fall, humanity is spiritually dead, blind, and deaf. Now notice that. Spiritually dead, blind, and deaf. Therefore, all people are completely unable to do not one single good thing in this life. Meaning a person could not believe in God even if he wanted to. Not that he would want to, because he's depraved. That's a, that's a mental condition. Depravity. According to that view, <clears throat> an influence of the Holy Spirit apart from the Word of God is required for one to be able to accept what God has said and commanded. Now, in giving an explanation of that belief, Charles Hodge, renowned 
Presbyterian scholar used this analogy. The truth is compared to light, which is absolutely necessary to vision, but if the eye be closed or blind, it must be opened or restored before the light can produce its proper impression. And he cited Acts 16 verse 14 in Lydia as biblical proof of the direct operation of the Holy Spirit upon the person of the non-believer. I want us to consider some truths so found in the text. I want us to go to Acts chapter 16. Open your Bibles with me. And let's read Acts chapter 16 and talk about this passage before us. Let's put away anything we've been taught, any preconceived notions, and let's study the text. Lydia did not evidence the character of someone who was depraved. She was not a Christian, but she was certainly not depraved. She, in fact, is described as one who worshipped God. A depraved person will not worship God. A depraved person cares only about himself in the sense of personal gratification. In the Greek text, the form is a present tense, middle voice participle. Okay, now I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know some Greek scholars. I I read their material. And so what that type of a participle teaches us is that it reveals Lydia's worshipful disposition as a habitual part of her life. She habitually worshipped the God of heaven, though incorrectly. We know she worshipped incorrectly because Paul taught her the gospel. Now, she likely had become a proselyte. Again, this is in a Gentile nation filled with pagan religions and like uh, Cornelius, she probably proselyted to the Jewish religion. How do we know that? She met on the Sabbath day down by the river to offer prayers to God. Though not having been exposed to the gospel at that time, she still is referred to as a worshiper of God. Now the text also speaks of her heart. This term is clearly used figuratively here. We do not think with our physical blood pumps, do we? No, of course not. The heart is intended throughout Bible literature to uh, be that with what the mankind perceives. Our minds, right? Uh, with the heart man perceives, John twelve forty. With the heart man thinks, Matthew 9, 4. Hebrews 4, 12. With the heart man understands, Matthew 13, 15. With the heart mankind reasons within himself, Mark 2, verse 6. With the heart, Romans 10, 10, man believes or people believe unto righteousness. Now the suggestion then of one's heart being opened means that one comes to an understanding of what is being stated. If her mind has been opened or her heart has been opened, that means that she has perceived what has happened. And she is understanding that. I think this is uh, analogous to Paul's expression, Ephesians 1.18, where he says, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance is in the saints. I don't think any of us would would, uh, uh, disagree with that. We understand what is meant by the heart. But I think the, the question is this. How did God open that noble lady's heart? I think that's the question. Did God open her heart? Absolutely. Anyone that would disagree with that is disagreeing with Scripture. The notion, it was accomplished though by some kind of a miraculous interaction of the Holy Spirit directly onto this lady is not supported in the Scripture. In response to that assertion, I want us to consider some key facts. First, there are scores of biblical examples throughout the Bible that God normally uses a medium to interact. He works through a means and not necessarily directly. Consider Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was not a follower of God. He was a pagan. He worshipped a heathen religion. And Naaman had leprosy. Well, there was, a, uh, there was a little slave girl that he had there that was from the nation of Israel. And she told Naaman, there's a prophet in Israel. And if you would go down there or told his wife, if my master would go down there, the prophet would heal him. Naaman became a believer in God and was healed from his leprosy via Elisha. Not directly from God. God never spoke to Naaman. Now, did God interact with his prophets? Absolutely. I'm sure that that God had spoken to Elisha in some way because that's how God gave his message at that time. He spoke to the prophet. The prophet spoke to the people. <clears throat> How was it Naaman found out about Elisha? The little girl who was his wife's maid. They went down to Samaria and Elisha told Naaman what to do. Now you remember what his reaction was? Well, I'm not going to do that. So he, he loaded up and left, didn't he? You remember what, what his servant did? His servant came to him and said, Father, If he had asked you to do some great thing, would you have done it? Yeah, I would have done that. Can you not do this? So he had a change of heart, didn't he? So he went back, and then he went down to the River Jordan, and he dipped seven times in that water, and he came up. He didn't have leprosy anymore, and he was a believer in the God of Israel. God never did talk to him directly. What about uh, as we look through other examples in the Bible? It's full of them. What about the eunuch in Philip? Did God directly talk to, to the eunuch? Not at all. But the Holy Spirit spoke with Philip and an angel directed him. But not at one time did they either interact with the eunuch. He was reading from Isaiah Philip came up to him and said, do you, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless some man guide me? So he got in the chariot with him and he opened up that scroll and he was reading from Isaiah 53. Verse 35 tells us that that same scripture, he began to teach him about Jesus. God didn't talk to him. The Holy Spirit didn't talk to him. 
Philip talked to him. Philip taught him the gospel. Then they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? Philip said, If thou believest thou mayest. He said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. See, we have to have to understand. God uses a means, doesn't He? What about our daily bread? Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread, Matthew 6, verse 11. Now, if we're going to eat in this life, one of two things has to happen. Either we're going to work and support ourselves and buy our food, or someone else is going to work and support us and buy our food, right? There's no in-between. Someone's buying the food. There are no free lunches in the world. So, but God, but Jesus said, pray for your daily bread. How do we square that? We need to pray to God to bless our efforts and He'll bless our work. Paul said, if you won't work, neither should you eat. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I just love this example. Pray to God for your daily bread, but don't expect sandwiches to fall out of the sky, right? You've got to reach and get it. You've got to get out there and work. God's using a means here, right? That's exactly the opposite of what this idea of total hereditary depravity means. Paul believed and taught that. He believed that you ought to do the things that you're supposed to do. Notice what he said in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Who gave us the seeds? God gave us the seeds. The Creator gave us the seeds. But who has to sow it? The sower. We have to do our part, right? That's what Paul believed. Second, I want us to know that the New Testament repeatedly affirms that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. The Holy Spirit directly talking to someone has never been described as the power of God unto salvation. The Bible, the New Testament word, we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that which in part is done away, Talking about the miraculous, we back up a few verses in 1 Corinthians 13. He said the tongues will go away. The, the, the miracles, that's a literary device. The part stands for the whole. Those things are going to go away, and then what's going to be left? That which is perfect. He's not talking about Jesus. Jesus isn't a that. The Jewish culture never referred to a, a grown person as a that. Now, they refer to an infant as a that, that, that holy thing. Right? Talking about Jesus as a baby, but never a grown person. That which is perfect is the completed Word of God. Why did we need miracles? They didn't have the Word of God. They had to perform a miracle to prove they were from God, and then they taught the gospel, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We don't need miracles today. We have the completed Word of God. Uh, The written Word of God is able to affect the salvation of the soul, James 1.21. Accordingly, it is by the preaching of the gospel that we are saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, and Ephesians 5, verse 26. And it is by the gospel that God calls us unto salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. Now, we're not called by the, by the Holy Spirit other than through the Word 
that is written and preserved for us. He's not going to speak directly to us. We're called by the gospel. And we have the gospel. And we're holding them in our hands. Third, I want us to notice that the very context of Acts 16 verse 14 indicates that it was by the power of the word that Lydia's eyes were opened. She came to the understanding of what God wanted because Paul preached to her. He gave her the message, right? First Luke said, she heard us. The tense of the verb means that, means that she was riveted on that information that Paul was giving her. It, it grabbed her attention. That's exactly the opposite of that error we call total hereditary depravity which affirms that one cannot give honest attention to the Word of God because he or she is not able. The Lord, in some miraculous way, must first open our eyes. And we also notice that she kept on listening. And because she kept on listening and understanding, her understanding was opened. And she began to reason through what Paul said. Second, the design was that she might give heed to the things which were spoken by Paul. This word heed indicates obedience to the preaching of Paul, not a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. She heard the words from Paul. A similar statement is made in Acts chapter 8 when Philip went down and the Samaritans gave heed to what he was preaching. Acts 8 verse 6 And the result was the same one found in Acts chapter 16 when Lydia gave heed. Both men and women were baptized, Acts 8 verse 12. Finally, I think it would be very important for us to ask this question. If one cannot respond to the gospel until the Lord through supernatural means influences us by the Spirit, and that opens our hearts, who will be responsible when one's heart is not open. It goes back to God, doesn't it? He is then responsible. Peter said, Paul said, that he wanted all men to come to the... Now, what word did we use earlier? Knowledge. Information. Come to the knowledge of Christ Jesus, right? Why would we want to come to the knowledge of Christ Jesus... Why would God want us to come to the knowledge of Christ Jesus? If we could not affect our salvation one way or the other, why would we need that knowledge? We need that knowledge in order to be saved. I think that this doctrine reflects upon the justice of the Creator. And there is no way that God is not a just God. And so this is a false doctrine. I think Lydia is an example to all of us. Because she held herself accountable. She wanted to listen to what was being said. Now I want us to consider one thing quickly. This is our last point. Our second and our last point. She held herself accountable, but she also accepted what was told to her. She was holding herself to a moral standard because she was a follower of God but she was not following Him appropriately. She was under this old law, right? So a person can be of high moral character and not be a Christian. 
There's no doubt about it. High moral character would never steal, would never cheat, would never be unfaithful to their husbands or their wives, would never do anything that God would oppose, morally speaking. But they can still lack being a Christian. Let's notice some things of her acceptance. First of all, religious people need to be saved. Just because a person is a religious person does not mean they are saved. Look around the world. You have adherence to Islam, extremely religious. Not saved. There's no way they can be saved. Living the lives they live, murdering the people they they murder. Lydia is an example of that. She was very religious. The thousands of devout Jews on Pentecost, they came from all over the world. You know how many obeyed the gospel? 3,000. There was probably between 2.5 and and 3 million of them there. 3,000 obeyed the gospel. They were all very religious. The Ethiopian eunuch was very religious. He was just leaving from there, right? On one occasion. But he wasn't saved. When we put our our trust and our beliefs in any system other than God's system, God's system was a patriarchal system for about uh, a thousand years or so. Then His system was the Mosaic system for about 1,500 years. And now it's been the Christian system for about 2,000 years. When God changes His system, the people have to change their system, right? In adherence with His so we got people who were Jews on Pentecost. They had to change. They were religious, but they were not saved. Like in the case of Lydia. <clears throat> All the examples of these accounts of conversion ended in one thing. Immediate acceptance and obedience to the law that was taught them. We live under the, lib- uh, the, the perfect law of liberty, James said. Paul said we live under the law of Christ. We live under a law. The New Testament is a law. It's a law, but it also has grace. The old law couldn't save. All it could do was tell us where we went wrong, right? But the new law tells us where we go wrong and tells us how to get right and stay that way. So we need to listen to that law. I think that is one reason it is so important to preach and teach the gospel to people because people are lost. Even religious people can be lost. In George Beasley Murray's book, in George Beasley Murray is a, is a uh, it was and is still a very respected Baptist scholar. He said something that I, I completely agree with here. He wrote a book called Baptism in the New Testament. He said, Baptism is here, speaking of uh, the day of Pentecost, Baptism is here a part of the proclamation of Christ. In an apostolic sermon, it comes as its logical conclusion. An effort ought to be made to restore this note in our preaching. And I agree with that. I agree with that. That's the logical conclusion. What happened on Pentecost? Notice Acts 2 verse 41. Read this with me. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That was the same logical conclusion when Lydia came to the understanding of the gospel. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized. It wasn't a miracle. wasn't a, a, a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. It was simply the Word being taught, and she came to the understanding of what God wanted. 
After obeying the gospel, Lydia and her friends urged Paul to stay. I'm sure those days following were full of questions and answers and fellowship. And all the while, so that she and those who those new Christians who had obeyed the gospel could abound in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I don't think anyone would deny that Lydia was a religious woman. But I don't think any of us would agree that we can get to heaven by being a Jew. We can only get to heaven through Christ and the Christian religion. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, No man cometh unto me, or cometh unto the Father except by me. She was not a Christian, but she was religious. She wasn't going to become a Christian by praying on the banks of the river, was she? Prayer's not going to get us to salvation. Ask Paul. Paul understood that, didn't he? When we read Acts chapters 9, Acts chapters 19, and Acts chapters 22, he relays how he was converted in Damascus on the road to Damascus. He, he met the Lord. He said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? He said, go into the city and there it will be told you what you ought to do. So he went into the city and he was there for three days. Now listen to me. He was crying. He was praying. And he was fasting. He had shown his repentance. He had already shown his belief and his confession of who Jesus was. But something was missing. And an eyes came and taught him the gospel. In Acts 22, 16, he said, Saul, Saul... Why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized, washing away thy sins. Saul was lost until he completed the gospel plan of salvation. And that's exactly where Lydia found herself. Now those are just a few reasons. Well, I believe Lydia is someone we ought to study more about. We don't have a whole lot of information about her in the, in the, in the uh, Bible. Two verses name her name. Two passages talk about her. But when we learn about Lydia, we learn she is an example to all. She listened. She heeded. She did what she was taught to do. Won't you come to Jesus today? Do it the same way Lydia did it. Believe, repent, confess, be immersed in water so your sins can be washed away. Come up out of that water being a new Christian, walking in a new life, Romans 6, 3 and 4. And let's be like the Ethiopian eunuch. The last thing we read about him, he went on his way rejoicing. The burden of sin was lifted. Come now as we stand and as we sing.